don't hit that skip button because I have huge news for you. The Rewind of the Living Dead t-shirt lives. It is here. It is available to purchase. Oh, yes, I'm not kidding. We finally got our Rewind of the Living Dead t-shirt out, and it's amazing. It is printed by the same company that prints for Cavity Colors and Fright Rags, which if you're a hardcore horror fan who buys a lot of horror t-shirts, I know I do, you know that's the very best and highest quality because we couldn't do anything less for our fans. It's an amazing full-color design designed by Jason Ragosta. It's very cool. It features a zombified myself, a zombified Damon, and it looks just like an awesome horror shirt because that's what we want because we're horror fans too. So we wanted to make a t-shirt that you could really sink your teeth into. Go to rewindofthelivingdead.bigcartel.com. Again, that's rewindofthelivingdead.bigcartel.com to get your t-shirt today. Rewind of the Living Dead is a review show, so spoilers are ahead. The success of the Insidious franchise made another sequel almost guaranteed, but following a pair of prequels that traveled back in time, the decision was made to return to the Lambert family that served as the focus in the first two films in the series. This time around, Patrick Wilson was tapped to both star as family patriarch Josh Lambert, but he would also go behind the camera to serve as director for the first time in his career. Lee Wanell, who crafted the original film, returned to create a story for the fifth film with veteran screenwriter Scott Teams handling the script. The story picks up nine years after the events of Insidious Chapter 2 as Dalton Lambert prepares to leave for college, but after having his memory wiped, he's lost when he's revisited by the ghost from his past and he's forced to navigate another journey into the depths of the further. All this time, I thought we closed the door, but they've been waiting for us. I'm gonna need you to remain still. Hello? Hello? <laughs> the only way this ends is to go back in. We're not done with you. The Red Door, exclusively in theaters July 7th, BDPG 13. In the latest episode of Rewind of the Living Dead, we're going to head to art class and make sure the nightlights stay on as we review the 2023 sequel, Insidious, The Red Door. Rewind of the Living Dead. I'm Damon Martin. And I'm Patrick Guerra. And Patrick, this week, after uh, tackling the original film in last week's episode, we are getting into the sequel, Insidious, The Red Door. Insidious 5, if you're nasty. Mmm, if you're super nasty. <laughs> and Damon, I just want to shout out real quick. The trailer announcer guy is making a comeback. Yes. This is the second trailer in recent memory, and I can't, of course, I can't remember what the other one is, where the trailer voice guy is in the trailer. We need more of that. Horror, by the way, is on its way back. And, you know, for those who don't know, at the time of this recording, Insidious 5 uh, actually, I, it did it outperform or, or oh, did it, it beat, just it was, almost? It was number one. It beat Indiana Jones. It's number yeah, one. It outperformed films. Indiana Jones, right? Which was supposed to be a humongous movie. Horror is doing really well. So I think the return of the trailer voice guy needs to be permanent. Because I, every now and then, you know, Damon will, of course, Damon 
uh, collates everything before the show. He's he's the hardest working man in horror at the moment, <laughs> and uh, and he puts together the trailers for us. And when he plays those classic trailers, there's always a trailer voice guy. And I'm listening to that. And I'm going, dude, we need way more trailer voice trailer voice guy for horror films. I uh, I actually like. Obviously, we love reviewing new films. We got a lot of great horror films coming up in the near future, but. I always love when we review the horror films from the 80s in particular because the the trailer voice guy was so prominent in those <laughs> days. And, like, there's nothing better than, like, late one night on Friday in Crystal Lake, Jason <laughs> came back from the dead. What will these campers do? You know, I love I loved those trailers. Like, those are my favorite. 80s trailers were the best. Yeah, they're really good. It's just, it, I don't know, it's... It's a lost art, but maybe it's finding its way back, and it's finding its way back with movies like Insidious Five. The well, you Red know what? I, you know, real quick, before we get to the review, I gotta say, you know what I realized I liked about the voiceover trailers and why we need more of them. Let me get a little scientific here for you, Patrick. You know why we need them? You and I have both complained about this a little bit, um, and this is and this could affect Insidious: The Red Door as much as anything. Trailers give away way too much these days like you and i we're obviously huge horror hardcore horror fans but we watch a lot of movies i mean we watch you know i mean we go see marvel movies we were just talking off air about going to see oppenheimer we are film fans and i love a good trailer like i do i get excited for a good trailer but these days like when they do like two and three trailers like you feel like you've seen at least a third of the movie by the time you step in there why i like the voiceover trailers is they're much more tease oriented like they show you a little bit but it's mostly the talking over the trailer and they sometimes even have flashes of graphics and stuff like actually like you know words like graphics yeah. whatever i feel like the, the the voiceover trailers don't give away nearly as much as the current trailers where it's literally like three minutes of a footage and you see like four trailers by the time you see the movie so you've seen like 15 minutes of the movie <laughs> before you step in there i'm like i feel like i've already seen it yeah yeah i think that there's the trailer itself is a lost art and like there's a billion reasons behind that and most of them are like algorithm based which is a, a buzzword of the times um where they just go you know what trailers that give away more of the movie do well and they 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 equal better ticket sales they don't care how or why they just go let's do that because the numbers are big that's yeah. really what it is there's no conspiracy behind it that's just how it goes but it's nice to just have the the trailer voice guy be like Freddy's dead is going to fuck you up because it sucks. <laughs> you know, like shit like that. Like you want like those cool, you know, I don't know. It's, it's a lost art. And, I'm, and it, I feel like it's making a comeback. Yeah, I hope so. I hope it is. Actually, I think there's another, I think uh, the new horror movie talk to me, which we will definitely be reviewing on the show. I think they mm-hmm. have a voiceover trailer, if I'm not mistaken, because I saw the new trailer for that ahead of insidious and i'm pretty sure there's a voiceover trailer with that where they're like the most frightening film of the year really yeah i think i think so i think it's a new one i think there is a talk i think there is a voiceover trailer for talk to me so yes more voiceover trailers is what we're saying here on the show today um so insidious 5 as i said insidious 5 if you're nasty insidious the red door the fifth sequel in the franchise now i want to give a little this is not a spoiler to the movie this little spoiler for the series we reviewed Insidious last week, and I openly admitted I had never seen Insidious before. You actually had the theater experience of seeing it. Now, have you seen any of the other Insidious movies? Not a one. Okay. So I did sit down and watch Insidious Chapter 2 because I knew that was the one that tied directly to this one. Parts 3 and 4 were both prequels that took place right. before the Lambert family. 
Now there is a TikTok account I follow. Uh, the 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 girl's name is Horror Chronicles, and yeah, she did follow her too. She did an incredible recap of all the Insidious films, and like a, basically like you know a spoiler a spoiler filled recap. And I was like, this is amazing. Like I left a note on one of the videos. It's like you have no idea how much this helped me because <laughs> I had time to watch the second one. But I knew the third and the fourth were prequels. They didn't tie directly into the movie, so I didn't have time to watch those. But I did watch her recaps, and I was like, this is amazing. Like Now I feel like I've seen the entire films, the entire franchise. Um, but I did get a chance to see Insidious 2. Now, to be fair, outside of one key component in Insidious 2, which is the end of the film, which that film's been out. I'm spoiling Insidious 2. I'm sorry. At the end of Insidious 2, after they get through the further and save everybody once again, um... They decide that the way to save themselves from going through all this again is to wipe their memories, just like Josh Lambert did when he was a kid. When Elise first showed up, she basically, you know, did a, you know, Vulcan mind meld or whatever the hell. And, you know, more or less wiped his memory. So he suppressed the memory so he would yeah. not know how to astral project anymore. And he couldn't get trapped in the further. And they did this to both him and his son Dalton at the end of the second film. So this film, Insidious the Red Door, picks up nine years later where we are basically finding the Lambert family a little bit broken and they don't know the further. They don't know how to astral project. They're basically back to square one, more or less, when this film begins. Yeah. And you know what? And so for someone who hasn't watched part two. I, I, it was made clear to me in this movie that that happened. Yeah. Uh, you know, I won't give away exactly how they do it, but I was like, oh, okay. So that's what happened at the end of the last movie. So they prepared people for that. They're like, there's going to be a lot of people who go see this who don't, who haven't watched the series. Let's get them up to speed real quick. Yeah. You know, I did a, a, little, a little bit of research and digging and reading about those movies, but overall, I just kind of just went from one all the way to five. Um, and I, and I didn't feel lost. I can tell you that right now without with the spoiler free version of my review is, uh, you don't need to see anything other than insidious one. And really, do you necessarily need to see insidious one to understand this movie? Not really. I mean, it would help, you know, it definitely, it definitely helps. And like, I think it also helps in like the, uh, the Easter egg way, because there's a lot of callbacks to the original, uh, that will help a lot. Um, but yeah, this, this movie, I think gets you up to speed rather quickly and you're in, yeah. um, Damon, what, what were your, were you in a packed house? Cause mine was pretty crowded for a Thursday was, night. Yeah, I was, I went to a Friday night show. I wasn't able to make it to a Thursday night show. I went to a Friday night show and yeah, it was pretty crowded in there. I had a good audience, which I've said a thousand times in the show. If you're going to go see a horror film and it's available to see it in the theater, go see it in the theater. Uh, the experience is so much better. And this one was made better by having an audience with me. Like I, I enjoyed it so much more. So yes, my theater was pretty packed. We went to a, I went to a theater that's like the, uh, it's not IMAX, but it's like the equivalent of that. It's like a big, huge mega screen. Um, yeah. So that's where I saw it at. And yes, I did see it with an audience and a, and a pretty packed audience at that. Yeah, my my audience was pretty big too, and it was a it was not unlike my first experience with Insidious, where I I sat next to a bunch of twenty something year old people and got to see if they were scared about something. And uh, and it I'll tell you like again, spoiler free stuff. I saw an audience that was reacting very heavily to the movie in front of me. How was Damon Martin reacting? Because you and I don't sit in the same room and ever watch movies together. We've done it once ever for <laughs> Nope. We need to do it again multiple times and maybe we'll get to do it in the coming weeks because you'll be coming to San Diego. Um, what was your initial kind of run up with this movie? So 
First off, let me say this. I understand the power of Insidious films a whole lot more after seeing this one in the theater and seeing it with an audience because this film is predicated on two main things, jump scares and really effective use of music to help bolster the the jump scares because there's a lot of silence I noticed that watching both Insidious films that I did watch, Insidious and in Chapter in Insidious Chapter Two, they use a lot of really quiet moments, and then the boom, because that's how they that's how they announce the films. When you see the big Insidious and the red letters, they do it. It's real yeah. quiet, and it's like explosive orchestra that like blows your ears out, and it's like scary because it's so loud. They do that with a lot of the jump scares too, where it's like super super quiet, and then bah, bah, like you're like oh Jesus, um, <laughs> yeah. But seeing it, so seeing it at home was effective, but seeing it in a theater was a whole other experience. So right off the bat, I understood the appeal of Insidious in a the theater because you and I have said we're, we're kind of, sometimes we are a mixed bag with jump scares. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they feel a little too generic and you just like, they lose their effectiveness when it's so generic that you just see it coming and it's just not, and now we've also given, we've also been honest and said that you and I are, are a lot harder to scare. So we see that we see things coming that other people won't. And so we can still admit that it's scary, even if it didn't scare us. Insidious the Red Door was a little different, where this one definitely, I see, I see the effectiveness of how they're doing it with the music and the jump scares. I get it. And the theater experience made me appreciate these films more um, even though I, this is the first one of these films I saw in the theater. So right away, because the formula is always similar is what I'm getting at. Yeah. The formula is the same. So right away, a, that's good. That's a compliment because they do it very well. And I got it when I saw it, I was like, Oh, now I really get it. Now I understand why people are like way into these films and why they are like, you know, um, into the jump scares of these films. The other thing that I noticed with Insidious the Red Door, though, it's almost like they dialed back the scares. Mm-hmm. They really dialed back the scares, which is weird. They really dialed things back in this movie, and it didn't, it didn't, I didn't understand that. I, I'm with you. I don't understand it. Now, Scott Teams, um, let me take a look here at what he's written. Um, because Scott Teams is our, is our, our, well, okay, he wrote Halloween Kills, or he helped write Halloween Kills, which yeah. we know um, Danny McBride and David Gordon Green helped with that one, too. Um, so that's that's one of the bigger ones that I've seen him write here. Um, it's And it's weird, because I think Halloween Kills is like, it's almost like strike a minute. That movie, like, just keeps punching you the whole time, whereas this is really, really pulled back. Um how do I how do I put this lightly, Damon? Could it be that our first time director had something to do with that? Now, uh, I, I'm like, you already said it. Patrick Wilson, great actor who I enjoy in lots of things, including the original Insidious, including um, what's the other one that the he conjuring, did? For, the Conjuring. The Conjuring. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, like, I enjoy this guy. I think maybe his directing style I mean, not that he's ever had one. He's This is his first film. That maybe his directing style wasn't lent to scares, which is interesting to say because he spent a lot of time on James Wan sets. A yeah. lot of time. He knows, he, he's, he's watched a, a craftsman, a real craftsman of scares do his thing. And then I, I really feel 
like Patrick Wilson was like, I want to set myself way apart from James Wan. I don't want, and I'm, and I'm here to say like, and it's funny because I, on our insidious podcast, my big, my big uh, controversial take was I would like to see an insidious remake without James Wan just to see what it would be. Um, but here watching Patrick Wilson direct this movie and, and, and reacting to what you're saying, which is, it seems like a very dialed back movie. I wish Patrick Wilson had tried to be more like a wannabe James Wan. He instead kind of chose a very static, very, um, very, very subdued movie. And I, I think it felt like to me a choice. It didn't feel like, oh, he just didn't know what he was doing. It felt like deliberately he was saying, I'm going to slow everything down and really just get to the heart of like this father son conflict and try to get it and try to get it right. And by the way, I've never directed a feature film. So Patrick Wilson can go tell me to kick rocks all day because he's done one and I haven't. But I do think I'm with you on this where, where I was like, man, I think there were a lot of, a lot of quiet moments in this movie, Damon. But that said, I was also there with a packed audience when the scares came, I could feel the, the energy in the room rise. You could feel it. I could, I could hear it at times, almost like a wave coming. Like people like, Oh, like it was when they were getting amped up for a scare, but there wasn't enough of them. So I'm going to, I obviously I agree with you because I said it earlier, they dialed back the scares, which didn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, But I am going to disagree with you a little bit on the Patrick Wilson thing. And I'm not saying you're wrong necessarily with how it was done, but I'm going to say, I, and I, when I say blame, I don't mean to like, you know, I'm not pointing the finger and saying it's all one person's fault. I'm not trying to do that. But I don't think the, the visuals, the direction of this film is where the problems lie. I think the problem lies with the script. Um, it was a story developed by Lee Wannell, who, of course, was the original writer of the Insidious movies. And then Scott Teams, who you mentioned, did Halloween Kills. He also did the recent Firestarter remake uh, and a couple other things. Um, I think that's where the problem lies because there's n- like the first like again not any spoilers here but the first half hour of this film is a very is almost like setting things up and there's not a lot of payoff in that half hour which is weird because when the first insidious happens you kind of get right into the scares you don't know what's going on you think you're in a haunted house yeah. like that's the big twist is you're not in a haunted house and that doesn't come till later but you kind of get the century in a haunted house story pretty quickly this one like obviously by the time you get to insidious five you have to assume people going to see this have at least seen the first insidious I'm sure there are audience goers who have never seen this, but I would imagine it's a very small percentage of people who are going to see Insidious 5 who haven't seen at least one of the other movies. So they have at least an idea of this universe you're stepping into. Because they did the whole memory wipe at the end of the second movie, they almost have to restart things in the fifth movie because this is a direct sequel to part two. Again, to be clear, part three and four were prequels. They have no ties outside of the characters to parts one and two part one two and five is basically the trilogy of the lambert family that's the family of patrick wilson and, and rose byrne um they wrote themselves into a little bit of a corner at the end of the second movie with the whole memory wipe so when you start the third film you're basically starting from zero again like they were at 10 they went back to zero and now we're starting at zero again so they take a half hour and you're back into like the discovery mode again they're trying to re reorchestrate you know, the feelings of the first one where you don't quite know what's going on. Here's the problem with that though. And this is where I say it comes down to the script. The audience already knows. 
So you're you. That's the problem. You you you've re- they wrote themselves into a bit of a corner at the end of the second film with the whole memory wipe thing. When you start the third film or the fifth film in the series, the third in this trilogy, you're starting over from scratch. So now they're rediscovering things because their memories have been wiped, just like Josh did in the first film when they found out that his memory had been suppressed when he was a kid. You're going through all this again. The problem is the audience already knows. Mm-hmm. Or at least the majority of the audience knows. So it's not as effective. And that's where I think it's a script problem, not a direction problem, because you're basically rewriting to reintroduce us to this world again. The ghosts, the further, you know, astral projection. These are all things. And this is not, a, I mean, this is, if you saw the end of the second movie, you know, like, this is what has to happen. Like, they're learning, just like Josh did in the first film. They're going through all this a lot in the first time again. And it loses the effectiveness because the spoil the cut the, the audience is already in on the secret. The effectiveness of that first film was the twist. It's a haunted house story. They're ghosts, okay, and good effective jump scares, all those kind of things, and it all worked. It was it was effective. It was the twist of finding out that it wasn't that. It was actually something much deeper and something afflicting their child Nicole. And you're like, oh man, this is really different. And we credited them for that originality because it didn't just did just seep into another generic haunted house story. This film, because of that ending in, in, in part two, they wrote themselves into a corner and to write themselves back out again, they had to expl- They had to basically put it, but when you, the audience is, that would be like, to me, like we talk about great twists and I'm sorry if you haven't seen the sixth sense by this point, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> if you listen to this podcast, if you don't know the twist of the sixth sense and you haven't <laughs> yeah. seen it at this point, we all know the twist in the sixth sense, right? It's Bruce Willis was dead the entire time. Sorry for 25 year old spoilers. <laughs> Bruce Willis was dead the entire time. Now the first time the world saw that we're all like, Holy shit. We did not see that coming. Now yeah. imagine they remake that movie in, in, in 2023, with the same premise, they just swap out Bruce Willis for Oscar Isaac. You sit down. Now, maybe it's great. You're enjoying it, but you already know what's going to happen. You already know the twist. Yeah. You already know, like, oh, he's dead. So, Or you, the, you, or you make a sequel to The Sixth Sense yeah. with the exact same, with, with saying, okay, we, uh, we just made them forget everything that happened in The Sixth Sense, and then uh, Haley Joel Osment bumps into Bruce Willis again. <laughs> yeah, or... And you're like, or, or so a, you or, know... Or there's you another, and I know. Or there's another kid and Bruce Willis is his therapist and we're like, well, we already know he's dead, so this kid could just see W. Like, we, again. Yeah, so in, in the seventh sense, <laughs> it's a kid and Bruce Willis again. Yeah. But we know that stuff. Yeah. Right? No, you're, and you're right. And by the way, I actually agree with what you're saying, that at the script level, yes, that's a problem. It's a problem to just go, let's forget the events. Let's have our characters forget the events while the audience knows all the events. And even if you never watch the other movies, you at least know enough of those events to know what they're not knowing, which is really weird. And I even had a note in there. I'm, I'm going, uh, Dalton is out loud saying something that everyone in this room knows. Yeah. And that's a really weird thing to do. Like, it's a weird thing to just reveal that, like re- say out loud something you already know. So I agree with you on that part. Where I push back is, and why I do ultimately put it on Patrick Wilson, is that, once the script is in your hands as the director, you have to guide it. And you have to, you ha- I mean, maybe you have to go, hey guys, this is kind of, we're trying to make this movie that everybody already knows. Like, can we push back in some ways? Okay, no, oh, we can't, okay. So how do I make it scary and fresh and new and different? 
And I don't see anything scary, new, fresh, or different. And he had production and post-production to figure that out. And you know what? He, Let me just not the final draft of that script. Not to, just in her, you know what I think it was, honestly, and this is I'm not trying to give an excuse, but you know what I think this could come down to, and you'll probably agree with me here. This I think comes down to a first time director. Does he know to push back? Does he have the does he does I he think he would? You know, but I mean, like I'm I'm just guessing maybe that's a possibility. Like maybe that's something because like maybe But he's also an actor and actors is. already know to help, like they're they're already there trying to hone the story he based on what they do. Yeah, I, I'm just I'm just thinking like, but you're because yeah. you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. You have a way to mold that, and that's where we talk about like they dial back the scares, they dial back a lot of things in this movie, and it's really odd that they do that because usually things continued. Like when you watch, I know you said you haven't seen Insidious Chapter Two, but when you watch Insidious, then go to Insidious. Like Insidious Chapter Two is basically Insidious on steroids. Like they really like they're like, oh, you like three ghouls? Here's thirty of them. You know, you like you like going into the further getting the piss scared out of you. Here's ten more minutes of that. Like they just take everything now. I like Insidious Chapter Two. It wasn't as good as the first one, but I did enjoy it. It was a pretty enjoyable film. They added a lot more lore and mythology in there, and that was interesting. But it was just it was literally the first film on steroids because you already knew where you were going. You already knew that you're in the further and the ghouls and you know the red faced demon, all that kind of stuff. So they had to punch you in the face a few more times and add in a little bit more story about like the history of some of the ghouls, right? Like that's kind of yeah. what you do. And it was well done. It was well orchestrated. Um, they went away from that a lot in this film. Like they went backwards and it's weird. And you're right about the direction. I'm sorry I interrupted you there, but like you're right. And like, that's the only thing I could think of is like, maybe that's why he didn't push back. Cause it was his first, maybe he was trying not to ruffle feathers. I don't know. You're right though. That, like, at some point, somebody had to be like, hold on now. Like, we're making a fifth Insidious film. This should be, like, this should be full on, you know, uh, I'm trying to think, like, you know, full on, like, you know, just juice to the eyeballs. Insidious. Well, just like, you know, like a dr like Dream Warriors or, yeah. you know, uh, Friday 4. You know, like, you just kind of go for it on 10. Yeah. Um, you know, however you want to go for it. But I felt like Patrick Wilson's choice was very much to make a father and son movie. Yeah. Um, and by the way, with heavy emphasis on the sun, it was really weird because like most of the time they were kind of split. I don't want to, you know, it's all, we're dangerously getting into spoiler territory. Maybe we should get in there soon. But I, it did seem to me like a choice for Patrick Wilson to go, let's make a father son movie. And in the spoilers, actually, there's there's more to that. Um, let's make a father son movie. And it's sort of like it almost it kind of trades a lot of what I think people love about the DNA of Insidious for a family drama and it, that to me felt very deliberate it didn't even feel like first time director it's like okay first time director who's saying this is now a father and son family drama yeah they just i don't know it was it was just like i said there were a lot of weird choices and it's not like there are moments in this film that do work like i don't want to say it's a film that totally doesn't work but it's just to me this was the weakest film in the series of the three i've seen and again, now, can you make a mistake by ratcheting up everything and just going full balls to the wall? Absolutely. I mean, that to yes. me, not to, you know, not, I mean, I'll say the same thing about this with Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, we, like I'll use my favorite franchise, Nightmare on Elm Street. I'll use this as an example. So I don't, I was about to dig on Friday the 13th, but I decided turn it, turn it back, against that, my, turn it back against myself, Patrick. We talked about this when we did our Nightmare on Elm Street franchise review and we went through every single film in the franchise. By the time we got to five and six, uh, Freddy's dead being six, 
one thing we totally agreed on, and because in part three, Dream Warriors, they made a tonal shift in Freddy to where he was scary and menacing, but also kind of funny. And not funny, like not full on quippy funny, but like kind of terrifyingly funny. Like when he did the whole, you know, welcome to primetime, bitch. It was kind of scary, but it was also, you know, a funny line. One liners. They really started leaning into that. Now, now part four, which I think is your favorite of of the franchise, Mm -hmm. was like still a good balancing act. It was goofy at times. It was a little funny, but it was still a pretty good balancing act. And the story was really well. Really, yeah. really well done. By the time they got to five, and especially in six, they leaned so far into the we got to make Freddy a goofy character that he was no longer scary at all. He was just goofy as shit. And it just took everything. So they kept leaning. They leaned further and further into that. And then, like, uh, again, not to just take a dig on Friday the 13th, like, in Friday, like, Friday the 13th has never been the most story driven franchise. I think we all agree on that. The idea of Friday the 13th was we like watching Jason kill people, but they kept trying to ratchet up the kills and they just got more and more ridiculous. And it got to the (laughs) point when they got to, like, Jason takes Manhattan that you're just like, this is like, this isn't even like it's not even creative anymore. You're just going over the top and bonker stupid with this stuff. So there, I think a, it got. I think bonker stupid was more like Jason goes to hell, Jason X. Those yeah, are that, bonker yeah. stupid. But my point <laughs> being is like there is a wrong way to do it. So yes. I'm not saying yes. that like there. Trust me, there is a version of Insidious Five where they go, you know, they inject both needles of steroids and they go completely over the wall. Yeah, Patrick Wilson becomes the lipstick demon. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, and he's like, ah, yeah, I'm the lipstick a, demon. Yeah, there's a million versions. So I so, but it's weird that they went in the other direction. I feel like for this film, like they didn't go. They didn't do the steroided up, for, you know, full on like, you know, we started at a 10, we got to go to a 12. Now, when you go to 12, that's a dangerous line to walk because you can take a 12 and you can go scream six, which was really well done where they added a bunch of gore and they really like, okay, yeah. you know, score, you know, uh, scream's not been the gorious franchise. We're really going to up the kills and the gore and the blood and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and you're like, damn, this was really well done. Or you can go the Friday the 13th Nightmare on Elm Street route where it gets goofy and or just over the top dumb. So there's a very fine balancing act in this. But they didn't even start at 10 in this film. That's the problem. They went back to zero. And then it felt like, I know I'm using a lot of number analogies here. If you're supposed to start at 10 in a sequel this deep into the franchise and you hope to get to 12 or 13, this film went back to zero and it felt like they stopped at like a four. Like they didn't even make it back to yeah. the 10 they got in the original film. Like they just kind of like, eh, we're going to go to about a four and that's enough. Yeah, I think, I think especially like in the current climate with, with, um, with a lot of legacy sequels, which I think you can count Insidious amongst like legacy horror at this point. I think it is one of the stronger horror franchises out there, that and The Conjuring, both James Wan products. Um, I think you do have some sort of like, like, Hey, we got to go for it. Like we got, we got to, we got to do something here. We got to do something to really like to bring it all home, to, to, to bring it back to what made us so great. I feel like you could say that about bands. You can say that about a good comedy. You can say that about a lot of different things. You could say it about like a, a legacy show returning, which they've all done this. And, And a lot of them have gotten it wrong, by the way, a lot of them have. So it's not, this is not dogpiling on Patrick Wilson. Maybe Patrick Wilson just said, you know, like, this is my first feature. It's kind of a big deal because it's part of the insidious like family. But maybe maybe the story that is important to me and that I want to tell is a little more subdued. Like, I want to try this other direction. I want to do this other thing. And his production company agreed. 
They said, yeah, we're, we're with you. We back you, which I actually am very much in support of, even if it goes wrong. I'm, I'm, I'd much rather a production company go, we're backing our director's vision as opposed to going, we are listening to all the outrage on Twitter or now threads or whatever you're doing now. We're listening to that and we're going to, we're going to react to those things. That's a mistake. Yeah, it is a mistake to do that. Don't do that. Don't don't listen to Twitter. Don't listen to threads. Don't listen to Facebook about their opinions on movies. Back your artists. Patrick Wilson is a great actor and he's probably he probably came to them with a ton of great ideas. It was his first outing and he stuck to I, I and again, I say this not even as a complaint, just as I, in my opinion, it was intentional to dial it back. It was intentional. He goes, maybe I'm not that guy, everybody. If you if you want me to direct this and I'm passionate about this series because I helped launch it, cool, but just know this is how I'm going to do it. And a studio backed him. That's how it felt to me. And I have no problem with that, and I agree. Back your artist, back your director, but at the same time, when you're in a franchise that's this deep, um, you've already set the expectation. You know what I mean? Like, this would be... The equivalent, I, I, I'm using a lot of analogy and I'm going back to slasher films, which this is not a slasher film, but the best way I can describe it is it would be like making Friday the 13th part seven and Jason doesn't show up till 45 minutes into the movie. You're going to be pretty pissed off if you go see a Friday the 13th film and you're in the seventh film in the franchise and it takes you 45, mas- 45 minutes to see a goddamn hockey mask. You're going to be pretty upset about that. Hey, in uh, the fifth film, he's not even in it. Well, yeah, but you know what I'm saying? Like that's, and yeah. so it feels like, again, like I agree. You, you have to, you have to sometimes, you have to separate yourself from the discourse. hundred percent agree with that because you will drive yourself mad. I am all for, a certain level of fan service. I think that can be good in certain ways. Uh, like when I went and saw Spider-Man no way home, that was full of fan service. And it was so much fun. I had a blast, uh, mm-hmm. but there's a limit to that. And you've got to, you've got to be able to, you've got to be able to stand your creative boundary versus fan service and, 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 and listening to the discourse. So I agree with you there. The problem is, is when you set expectations in your franchise with four films, which from my understanding, parts three and four, even though they were prequels, were very reminiscent of one and two. They were just set in a different part of the world, but very reminiscent in terms of the ghosts and the scares and the, you know, ratcheting up the fear is that, you know, much like you did in the first and the second one. So to take it from that and then go back down again, I'm not saying they're wrong. No, I, I I mean, I'm, I'm dis, I'm, I'm dissatisfied because, it didn't re- a lot of this just didn't feel like an insidious film. And I, as you said, like he's trying to make a father son film. I'm not, you're hundred percent right, but it's not an insidious film for a lot of it. And that's the problem. And that's where I feel like it's a little bit of bait and switch here, because while I do appreciate and agree with, with um, following your artist's vision. And again, we'd have to see the script to know exactly how much of this was just following directly to the script and also like how much of it Patrick Wilson did or did not change or how much he did or did not lean into it. And we also have to remember there's like nine drafts of a script. It could have been completely different in draft one. But um, there's certain expectations that I feel like you have to live up to a little bit when you're in a franchise like this. You know what I mean? The Conjuring... You know, The Conjuring has done it. Um, obviously, slasher films are famous for it, scream films, things like that. And that's where I feel like this film really fell short because not only did it not feel like a ratcheted up sequel like you would be expecting for the fifth film in this franchise, but it felt like they went in such a different direction that it almost didn't feel like an insidious movie. And 
I'm not saying it's I'm not saying the choices are necessarily all bad, but if I'm going to see Insidious Five, as I said earlier, chances are you've seen Insidious at least one, as you did. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it felt like a different film to me. Yeah, I mean, I'd say I, I'm getting a, I'm starting to get a bit muzzled. So do you want to do you want to go get into spoilers? Yeah, let's get into spoilers. Um, so right now, as we always say, we like to warn you. We're going to get into the spoilers. Now, if you haven't seen the Insidi- Insidious, the Red Door, go see it. It's in theaters right now. Number one film in America. I always like to tout that because I love that horror films are yeah, killing are. it at the absolute box office. At the box office, absolutely killing it right now at the box office. Also, as we mentioned at the top of the show, we still have Rewind of the Living Dead t-shirts. Uh, please buy one. Patrick's rocking one right now. I'll be rocking one, one next week when I'm at San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, you can get those at rewindofthelivingdead.bigcartel.com. That's rewindofthelivingdead.com. Dot bigcartel.com. We have sizes small through 2XL. Order right now. We will ship them out. Actually, I will ship them out. They're sitting right behind me right now. Damon will do it. I will personally <laughs> be shipping your shirt. Um, all right. So now we get into spoilers. We'll get into categories in a second with uh, the Insidious the Red Door. So let's get into spoilers and, and where we feel this film kind of veered off course a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think, okay. So we mentioned earlier that, yes, Patrick Wilson, and I think. And and probably uh, um, Scott Teams decided, hey, this is let's let's make this film about a father and a son. Um, and and what and and by the way, that's apropos to the trilogy or to the to the franchise rather, because this all started with a father trying to save his son. That's where it all began, and it all began with a father passing on his ability to astral project to his son Dalton. His son Dalton astral projects gets latch a demon latches onto him and then haunts them haunts them as a family and and the father josh has to has to go back to his astral projection roots to go into the further and save his son okay well we did that chaos ensued we brought a demon back at the end but we saved dalton and then in the second movie we saved the whole family from the demons that attached itself to josh okay a lot of that stuff happened a lot of a lot of good like feedback from the audience you get it and then all these years later, let's revisit it, man. They re- they were revisiting all these other horror franchises, and they're kind of going for the strong requel. I think it's time to do it, Patrick Wilson. What do you think? I think I think it's going to be about that father and son again. I think it's got to be. And Scott Teams is going, fuck yeah, bro. It's got to be. I'm just paraphrasing. I don't know if they say bro, but um, yeah. I mean, I thought this movie had a lot of moments that slowed way down that, that to me felt more almost like a slice of life movie. Um, but also at the same time, not fully fleshed. And this is into the script issues that you were having. I was having these issues too. We jump way ahead in time. Uh, we find out the Lambert family is in complete fractured in a completely fractured state after uh, uh, Josh and Dalton were hypnotized into forgetting everything that happened in the events of the first two movies. Um, It clearly has a negative effect on Josh and Dalton. Josh and Renee split up. The family is, has been divorced for quite some time. They don't really specify. Um, And Josh doesn't seem to like be like he's part of this family anymore. And it's sad actually. And I, I remember like sitting there going like, well, this is kind of sad. (laughs) <laughs> like I'm kind of a, I'm kind of sad for the Lambert family because they went through hell, but it made sense. I go, well, logically they went through incredible trauma together and the family willingly decided to erase the memories of two key people 
and it's going to have an effect. And, and, and it, they show it that Josh is not quite right. He's never been the same since they erased that. Dalton's clearly never been the same. And, uh, and, it's, and it's made a mess of their family. And now Dalton's off to college, off to an art school. Josh kind of wedges his way in there. You can tell from some pretty effective and efficient writing that Josh hasn't been really part of his life. And it's almost disingenuine that he wants to take Dalton to school. I'm into all this. I understand what they're doing logically. But I was starting to go, are we going to get to the insidious? <laughs> and like, is that going to happen? And like, I got, I, got, I got a family drama here and it's legit. But are we going to get to insidious at any point? And then we get to insidious, Damon. It, it finally happens. Do you want to talk about rolling into insidious? Well, I mean, when did we roll into insidious? Because I never, I'm not really <laughs> sure it happened. I mean, as Isn't I said, it weird how it happened. The, the first, well, so the first two films, like what what was cool about the first two films, especially the first one, that's the one we reviewed last week, is like we had a category for favorite ghoul. You know, yeah. we had a favorite a favorite demon, whatever you want to call it, a favorite you know undead person, and there was like they were littered throughout the house, and that's why we thought at first it was a haunted house, and then we find out they're all kind of sneaking through the further to into our world. Um, there was like two demons in this movie. <laughs> Yeah, there's a handful compared to at least the first movie, which well, I've seen, and I know you saw many two, more in two, the second two, one. Two demons who are on screen for more than five seconds. Let's put it that way. Are there others True. randomly? Sure. But are there any, like, impactful, like, we had, like, real, like, we knew from the first one there was the, the, the black-veiled bride, and there was the lipstick face demon, and there was the little boy, and there, you know, there was a number of demons that weird no face guy that was in the bedroom. Yeah. Like we got a lot of, a lot of creepy demon dead characters, whatever you want to call them in the first one. Um, and the second one, as I said, was that on steroids, they ratcheted it up in the second one. There's even more this one. There was like two, like two who appeared for more than a total of like 10 seconds of screen time. It was bizarre to me that yeah. like they dialed it back. And then I know I'm going back. I'm not trying to rehash what I'm saying, but now that we're in spoilers, I can explain it more clearly. The whole discovery of it again, like Dalton starting to slip into the further in his dreams and starting to have these like little waking moments of creepy things happening to him. And then Josh also experienced. So they start experiencing it at the exact same time, which is odd, but okay, that's a movie. We'll have to buy it as like they're both slipping into the further again. But again, they wrote themselves into a corner. Now I'll, I'll pass the blame on Insidious Chapter 2 is maybe they just thought they weren't going to revisit this. Like they were going to just close their minds off to it and that's why they went prequels for Part 3 and 4. But going back to that, like you've written yourself into a corner by wiping their memories, suppressing their memories. So we spend the first 35 minutes of this movie with Dalton slipping back into the further. And it's again, just like the first one, it's little, it's like trail of breadcrumbs. You know what I mean? A little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, a little bit there. I don't, I don't even agree with that assessment. I think it was like one weird moment. Yeah. Like but, slipped him. It's almost like the lightning strike in Friday six, Friday six resurrects Jason via lightning strike. Yeah. I would say instead of little breadcrumbs, what happens is Dalton goes into that art class with, by the way, what's her name from succession. Oh, Marsha, um, Marsha, yeah, Marsha from Succession is. Which I was like, "Hey, it's Marsha!" I'm so excited. Uh, uh, who plays Professor Armagon? His 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 art is is really like intense art. She became teacher. she became an art teacher after selling that penthouse to to Connor. That's what she did. She <laughs> this is a Succession podcast all of a sudden. Uh, but yeah, so she's his professor, and she does like this almost hypnotic like countdown that like unlocks him. Yeah. 
And at the same time, in a parallel story, you know, like Josh and and Josh and uh, and Dalton had this big blow up. Well, Josh goes off and says, "I'm gonna get I'm gonna get work on myself." Like clearly, I, I haven't been a great dad. So I'll, I'll you're right, son. I'm gonna go work on myself, even though you hate me. Up, I'm gonna try. He goes and he gets an MRI or not a CAT scan, one of the two. That's no, an MRI. It's an MRI. So, yeah. It is an MRI. Okay, yeah. So I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm clearly not a medical professional. <laughs> um, these two singular events simultaneously trip their repressed memory. And that's how it kicks off. Yeah. Like it's really weird. It doesn't like. It isn't like it creeps in out of nowhere. Like these two super specific things happen. These two lightning strikes happen at the same time. By the way, an impossible double lightning strike. Here they go, at that unlock their repressed uh, ability to attract it, it got messy I, i'm yeah. having trouble like forming it because i'm having trouble well, also understanding because the idea of astral projection in the first one is that they were asleep like they're in a right. dream state and so they kind of feel like that's why it's so that's why it's so different because they they don't know for sure they're not dreaming like they feel like they are dreaming so they're slipping into this astral projection and so they're it's like an out-of-body experience but it happens when they fall asleep so like just like when josh gets hypnotized and he goes under he's basically asleep like that's what you're being done when you're hypnotized you're you're not conscious right they both have this happen where they're fully conscious like he's in the middle of an art class dalton's in the middle of an art class and dad's in an mri and they just i know they said like that 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 josh fell asleep during his mri so they did kind of explain that one away a little bit like he said you've been asleep for 30 minutes or whatever so that one they kind of did but Dalton was just like drawing and then like, he's just in it. And, but again, I I, I want to, I want to keep, why did that work? Yeah. I don't understand I, why but, it worked, but I don't want to keep hammering away at the point, but I'm just saying like, even, okay, they did it in a weird way. It doesn't make any sense, but we're still learning them. They're still relearning this skill and we already know this. And that's why I said that they spend so much time, half the movie is Dalton learning how to experience the further again and what he can do in the further. Right. We already know what he can do in the further. We learned this <laughs> 12 years ago, 13 years ago. Like that's the, pro- like, I understand they had like, I, when you, like, I'm not, listen, let me, I'm not trying to do, I am doing rewrite the living dead here. Uh, you wrote yourself into a bit of a corner with the memory suppression at part two. All you had to do, and I'm sorry, Lee Wanell, who who crafted the story and Scott teams who wrote, I'm not sitting here saying I'm a better writer. Let me be clear about that. I'm just saying like, this is my idea. Why didn't they just like, if they're going to do the whole separation of the family, like they're going to break up uh, Renee and Josh and they're kind of a fractured family. And also the opening of the film starts with Josh's mother, Barbara Hershey's character dying and they make it seem like this monumental thing, yet they never really talk about it. Like, it never plays any part in the rest of the story. Like, I thought Barbara Hershey was going to pop up in the further. She didn't. Like, she's just, just like this weird, like, we just killed off a character for no real particular reason. And it didn't even have, like, a, an emotional impact. It was just a way to bring them all together for a funeral. But anyway. I mean, yeah, so, it, was, it was. That was its, it, the device was to bring them together yeah, but because grandma died. Could have easily just but Then been, it kind of links with this whole, like, oh, grandma kept a secret. Uh, it's like, but also Renee's keeping a secret. She really knows weak. that your memories have been wiped. Uh, little Callie's keeping a secret. Yeah, Foster's was, keeping a secret. A lot very, of people are keeping a secret, not just grandma. Very weak is what I'm getting at. So why not, like, if you wrote yourself into a bit of a corner with the whole memory suppression and you want to talk about fracture in the family, why not just reveal that right after this happened, they started experiencing this again and Josh 
refused to be mind wiped. Like maybe Dalton was mind wiped and he just refused, like it didn't work on him. And so like you just start the new movie and that's why they split up is because he started astral projecting again and he's kind of gotten obsessed with knowing more and like going further and further into the further. And she just like, I can't take this. Like you're, 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 too, you're endangering the you're family. You're endangering yeah. the family and you're getting, you know, it's just like an addiction now. You're on drugs, except your drug is the further. And that's how you split it up. And then when Dalton starts experiencing, then dad's there to help him and they're estranged family comes back together because he's like you know what you're right i've you know screwed everything up i got too obsessed with this but when dalton starts having these flashbacks again josh has to realize oh man i need to save my son and now i can finally put these skills to use but i also need to put a stop to this forever because this is going to endanger his life i've drawn this back to him and again i'm not saying i'm a better screenwriter i'm just saying like that would have been a story where you're not just putting us back in the beginning of the first film because that's what this film is it's another origin story for an hour and 10 minutes before like they finally come clean when rose burns character is like well we actually suppressed your memories you've been here they still don't remember they just get told that they did this and so we just revit like there's i mean there's literally a carbon copy of the first film where dalton is locked in a cage in meatloaf's basement with the lipstick and it's literally the carbon copy of the first movie we're just reliving it (laughs) i have that in my notes i go so we're literally back at the thing we did we're just doing the thing over again i kind i could get why they'd go let's revisit that like it's let's come full circle and like and i think that's actually where the movie got kind of messy i was like wait are you now playing with time (sighs) it feels like you're starting to do time travel which you should not do movies should not like i don't care avengers endgame back to the future is the only one that ever did it where i it was entertaining even though there are holes in it there's it's still entertaining you get in trouble when you play with time and it was dangerously close to playing with time travel and i was like uh, i don't know if you should do that well they played with, um, they played with a whole lot of time travel in the second one so you probably shouldn't see the second one there's a lot of time travel in that one it's it's a it's a dangerous place to go it, it is you, you you create paradoxes constantly unless you can explain that you're in a completely different thing like it, it's tricky so they were getting into that and then, you know, and now, now back to what I was talking about earlier, which is like, okay, so yeah, so Patrick Wilson kind of wanted to make a father-son movie, but then they spend almost all of the movie apart yeah. after that point. Once they break away and start delving into their, uh, trying to fix their situation, but also at the same time unlocking their problem, they do it completely separately. Yeah. And then they have to kind of come together at the end to figure it all out together. And that feels less earned. It's like, oh, okay, I understand like in some level, Patrick Wilson's character, Josh is on one side trying to earn his way back into his family's life. And on the other side, I don't know what Dalton's trying to earn. I'm not quite sure. He's just kind of fucking around with his astral projection and it's causing problems. And then like a, like a clue pops up. And then I have this note because it was Dalton's side of the story is getting wacky. And at one point I was like, well, here's a summation of what's happening at this point in time in the movie. And I wrote this down. Dalton goes snooping all astral like to get some clues from the barf ghoul that ends up summoning the lipstick demon. (laughs) If that sounds wacky to you, it's because it is. Yeah. And it's also, goofy. Can I also throw out, I'm sorry, I don't want to like get off topic here, but you mentioned this is a father-son movie. I kind of forgot about this because it was another part that I took a note on. I was like, why are we doing this? At some point, Josh gets visited by his own father, 
and we it, t- it turns out that his father was was class was uh, was um, uh, diagnosed as schizophrenic. His his father apparently astral projected, and they introduced this weird thread where he like he his father's coming back to haunt him in the, in the further, and then he goes into the further. In the end of the movie, we see him like find peace with his dad. And I'm like. Are we inter- are we only introducing this because we couldn't get Barbara Hershey to sign back on to do this movie because she was there the entire time we never heard dick all about the dad dad didn't exist in these movies until this moment and then suddenly the father is like relevant and he's talking about his dad and his dad's visiting him in the further and then they have this weird like star wars uh obi or uh luke skywalker anakin skywalker moment with like the force ghost at the end of the movie where his dad like winks at him and i'm like what is going on here like I, i i'm seriously wondering like did they write this movie for barbara hershey's character to die and herbie in the further kind of like elise had been in the second one and she's like now kind of like the good ghost in the further uh did she just be like did she read the script and be like nah i'm not coming back for this one they're like all right well we're gonna fucking kill you and we're gonna bring back <laughs> dad instead like that's I, there there was i wrote that down i was i, I think I, I had to pull up the exact note on my phone i literally wrote down at one point i think i wrote what the fuck is dad doing here because it was the weirdest like thread they introduced that had no like so that's where I think you're talking about the father son story you're a hundred and ten percent correct I kind of forgot about that till I just looked at my thing um they, they introduced the dad character for Josh and I'm like why did this why did this suddenly matter we've never even heard him before and now he's like this seminal character in the story and at the end he's doing the whole like mystical wave goodbye and I'm like what the fuck is this like what is going on here well, I, to be fair, and it is out of nowhere, I think what the implication is, is like this thing is being passed oh, from no, father I, to I, son to father to son. I get it. But they right. didn't But they didn't talk about that until the fifth film. Like why? And <laughs> that is that therein lies the problem, which is goes right back to your favorite film, Halloween Ends. <sighs> if if in Halloween Ends, you establish Corey in Halloween one or and by the way full credit to my buddy Josh Pruitt who we were talking about this today instead of having Josh uh, 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 Cody uh, uh, Corey <laughs> Corey in, in Halloween ends make it the granddaughter yeah. make it somebody relevant to the entire story that we've been telling don't introduce somebody new yeah I get what they were doing logically I I know what they were saying it's coming from the father. The ma- the gram- grandma's secret, Barbara Hershey's secret, was that the dad killed himself to try and stop the cycle, but you can't stop it. Yeah. So the dad's out there somewhere. Turns out he's in the further and he becomes our great deus ex machina and he helps save the day. Okay. I'm into, I like Friday the 13th, the new blood. That's totally what happens. Tina's dad helps save the day. It happens. It happens in movies. However, only a bonkers movie like Friday the 13th can get away with that with a movie that follows its own logic and rule set and universe of rules. It felt a little less earned to just go, Oh yeah, it's the dad and the dad can help. You just, it it just came late. If there were sprinkles of it beforehand. Okay. But you know, that's when it starts to feel disingenuous. That's when it feels like, Oh, was this a cash grab? Yeah, well, the first like, one. Like, how do they, we get this to work? Oh, it, let's just bring, let's introduce the dad. If there had been a line or two in the first one where they said your dad had issues, and I was hoping that it wasn't the same thing affecting you, and so we suppressed your memories or whatever, that little throwaway line, 
That's all they had. There was none of that, though. Like, we never heard anything about his father. But, it's, but to be fair, it does logically make sense that it's being it, passed from father does, to son. It does. It does. It's just, it feels less earned. You can't just introduce that in the fifth film. If you do it in the first film, again, using my Star Wars analogy, yes, they pull the wool over your eyes, you introduce Darth Vader, and then the second film you find out he's Luke Skywalker's father. I get that. That's the twist in Empire Strikes Back, but you've already introduced Darth Vader. We already know who he is. He's the ultimate badass. We know who he is, and oh shit, he's also our hair, our hero's father. That just totally turns the story on its head. Up the stakes, yeah. If in part one they mention it and say like his dad had these similar issues, or maybe maybe we just hear uh, Lorraine, I think was her name, Lorraine telling uh, Elise like I told you about his dad. We just we didn't hope it was happening, and then like maybe Josh like what's going on with my dad? And she's like oh nothing, nothing, and then maybe. Maybe the second one, they kind of drop into their breadcrumb about it. And then by the fifth film, when they actually show us his dad, we're like, oh, this was the link. This was the tie. But to yeah. just it, like, again, it's 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 creating a solution for a problem that didn't exist. Like, if you're going to do that, make it the mom. That's all you had to do. Barbara Hershey's character dies at the start of the film. That's how you're yeah, tying you had her. She was you, right there. That's her. She's the link. Like that's how she, she secretly, she figured out how to control it. Or maybe she did something to where maybe she, took, she passed it to her only or, son or she, or she took enough drugs to suppress it. And that's why she no longer astral projected. so she was terrified when it happened to him. I don't know. But to have it be the dad just randomly that you've never introduced before, it feels like you're writing a solution to a problem that didn't exist. If we'd never heard from the dad in this entire film and they just eliminated that story, nothing changes about this movie. Absolutely nothing changes about this movie. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, mom was sitting right there. I mean, it's in the fucking plot. It's like, yeah, she dies at the top of the movie. She's carrying a deep, dark secret. It's your dad, and now your dad is the most important key to this whole thing. And you're like, ah, it feels it just it rang disingenuous, as logical as it is, because I know with I don't know for sure, but I'm in, in my mind based on all of the stories I've tried to break over the years. You go, well, it would make sense, yeah, that it passes down from the father to son. Okay, so yeah, let's introduce the dad. Okay, but he's been no he's been nowhere in this. And so now, you know, the mom was a better opportunity. It was. I'm not going to beat a dead horse on this. Yeah. Mom was a better opportunity. Now, uh, completely side tangent now that we're bringing up dad. How how was cuz dad's a specific ghoul that sort of is haunting this movie as well. How was the audience reacting to what I call the window ghoul? How was the audience reacting where you were cuz I have I, def, I have a definite gauge on how the audience was in my in, in, in my audience they were reacting a very specific way the audience i was sitting with every single time especially at the beginning of the movie when josh first sits in his car after the funeral and you see this weird little blurry vision behind him and it continues to get a little clearer and clearer as it gets closer to him and you realize it's it's a thing and not you know um just a blurry vision in the back of the car my audience, every single time that popped up, they would go, oh, oh yeah. no, oh, no. Yeah. And it paid off in one way when he's in his house and, and the dad ghoul finally kind of like introduces himself and Josh is running through his house away from it. Um, but yeah, that was the general reaction was the, oh, no, oh, no, it's yeah. there. That was the general reaction we got. 
Yeah, it did remind me because I want to say some positives about this movie because <laughs> I feel like we spend a lot of time just talking about how it didn't work for us. But I, it, it it harkened back to the little dancing boy in Insidious, in yeah. the original, where I could feel the energy in the room start to swell and buzz with that ghoul, just the way it was being introduced. And it even I and this is credit to how Patrick Wilson crafted this. The idea that he's always in the distance and he's 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 closing in on on Patrick Wilson. He's always out of focus, always out of focus, always getting closer and closer and closer. I could feel the reaction in the room from that. They were they were getting a rise out of it for sure. Yeah. So I was I was like all credit to that. As weird as it is and as convenient, and I called it I called it in my notes. I was like that's a little too convenient of a device, but as convenient as it was, it was affecting the audience in the way that they intended to do it oh there was a really my one of my favorite parts of the movie and it's not my favorite scare which we'll t- we'll get to in just a second with categories one of my favorite parts of the movie was the match game prank which was at one point when when patrick wilson's character when when josh goes to get help he goes to the doctor he goes to the mri and the doctor says you're completely healthy there's nothing wrong with you like there's no lesions on your brain like there's physically nothing wrong with you have you thought about like, you know, psychology? Have you thought about dealing with this from a psychological standpoint? You're having memory loss and blank spots in your memory. Uh, you should try like a matching game. We've, we've had great success with this. Like, you know, you start doing like a matching game. You can help kind of retrain your mind to remember things. And so there's a point where Josh has these basically like match cards taped up on his window and they flip up and he has pictures of his family and he's using them as like the match game. And there's a great little trick in this movie where he's flipping up the pictures. He's like, okay, Dylan, or or, or not Dylan, uh, 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 Dalton, Dalton. Okay, Dalton. Okay, Renee. Okay, uh, Foster. Ah, it's not Dalton. He starts over and he keeps mixing matches. Well, at one point he flips open the thing and you see the the creature, the, the ghoul, kind of diss in the background and the next time he flips it up it's a little closer flips it up again a little closer really really strong i really enjoyed that scene it was a really really cool effect and that one definitely got the oh shit oh, yeah that was oh, great yeah. real quick before we get to this, one last thing i want to mention and i know it's a criticism one last thing i want to mention about this one thing we talked about with insidious that we kind of had a little bit of a problem with yet we ended up liking was introducing what we called the Ghostbusters in the first film, which was um, Specs, Tucker, and Elise. They kind of pop in, and suddenly they're part of the gang, and they're like, it gets a little comical at moments, but, you know, Elise is... Kind of a funny poltergeist element. Yeah, Yeah. but Elise becomes a key character throughout this entire franchise. I mean, she's the main character in parts three and four. Um, Part five... Elise is in it for about eight seconds at the end of the movie when she has like a weird ghostly encounter with Josh and then Tucker and Specs and Tucker are in a YouTube commercial (laughs) and that's it. Like you needed to get these people that you've suppressed their memories. You need to get them back to where they were. Why in the bloody hell did Specs and Tucker not pop back in to like help them at that point? Like, I just, it's weird to me, like, also, like, another thing about this movie, like, Rose Byrne is, is again, almost non-existent in this movie. She's in it for maybe five I have five a theory minutes. on that. Now, but, but again, uh, why well, I, I probably have the same theory, kind of like what I was talking about with Barbara Hershey. Who knows how they negotiated contracts? Who knows what availability people had? I know Rose Byrne's on a show right now. Maybe she just didn't yeah. have the time. That's all very possible. I'm, I understand that. But a big part of the dynamic of the first two films, especially the first one, was the the Lambert family. 
You had Josh, Renee, Dalton, Foster, and Callie, the little girl, and then you introduced Lorraine, the mom. So you had six characters. This film whittled it down to two. The yep. entire film is Josh and Dalton. You really barely, I mean, you get Foster a couple of times on a phone, which is barely there. And then you have you have a couple of scenes with Renee, but again, very minor. I mean, I I would if I said ten minutes of this film she's in, that'd probably be about it, right? Maybe ten minutes. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe ten minutes. So you've eliminated that, and then the other ties to the other part of the universe. There's no lease except for that one little scene, and then you get a YouTube video with Specs and Tucker. It's like the weird. They just made a lot of weird choices in this movie that I didn't really understand, especially. For a film franchise that even the prequels, like the prequels, all involve Elise Tucker and Spe- or, uh, Tucker and Specs at some point. Um, every film in this franchise is tied to these like nine or ten characters. By the fifth one, you again you figure they would amp it up, right? But no, they dial it back to where there's two characters, and you don't even get the people from the. Like, it was the weird. It was just a lot of really odd, weird choices. For what they did with this movie. And I just, again, it just, it just, I don't get it. Like, I don't, I didn't hate the movie. I, I know I'm, I'm offering a lot of criticism here, Patrick, and I'm not trying to just be like super, super critical. This was the weakest of the, of the films I've seen in this franchise of the three I've seen. But more than anything, they just made a lot of choices that it's not even that I don't agree with them. I just don't understand them. And I, I want to come to defense to the defense of of Patrick Wilson and and maybe even Scott Teams um, and, and the producers of this movie. For all they know, for all we know, they wanted to do these things, and schedules don't work out. Yeah, it happens absolutely, all absolutely. the time. I, I don't know the machinations of it all. I don't know who said yes and no. I guarantee Roseburn was too busy to do this movie in full, and they probably had to pare her her down a lot. And maybe it got to the point where they're like, we're paring her down so much it's probably better off to just make this a Dalton and Josh movie. Like it's probably better to just do that because if I'm trying to weave in Callie and Foster and the grandma and I can't get Rose Byrne in here and it's hard to get these people in the same room for scheduling or whatever, certainly in the rewrites, they just go, let's start, let's start pairing. By the way, we didn't really even get to this. Most of this movie, most of this movie is Dalton at college. Yeah. It's mostly Dalton at college experimenting with astral projection is most of it. Yeah. It's a, a vast bulk of this movie, which we won't even get into. We've ran out of time to even get <laughs> into that. But I, I would be willing to bet that some of that has to do with just like too many scheduling conflicts. If they really wanted to try to like bring it all back, they, they probably had a hard time doing it. However, uh, one of those, uh, in one of these instances where I was like, I know you could have got these guys. You could have got Tucker and Specs. Yeah. You could have got them. They, they gave him this really funny, very Tucker and Specs moment. Like, of course, Tucker and Specs would end up having a YouTube channel yeah. about ghost hunting. That makes sense for who Tucker and Specs are. So I liked that, but I was like, but you got, but you gave me a little sprinkle of them. You're telling me you couldn't get Lee one L who's, probably a producer on this movie to do like 10 minutes worth of scenes. Yeah. You, you, you couldn't get Tucker back for just a little bit to like bring, to bring them into the fold somehow, because it that's fan. That's purely a fan service request. It's not like a story request. It's not like, Oh, that would have made this better. But I was like, they did get them. It would have been cool to just go that route, but it didn't, I, I didn't require it, but since they used them in that way and they use a lease, by the way, in a very nice way, in a very touching kind of send-off way. It's like, dude, just use Elise instead of the dad. Yeah. 
use Elise as she's trapped in the further instead. Like, like, I don't know. I mean, that's, uh, these just, are the things I would have liked, but, but in the defense of the filmmakers or producers and knowing what goes on, maybe they tried those things and they couldn't get it done. And I understand. I get, I true. I totally agree with that. And I get it. My, my issue is, is that if all that is there and if that's the case, then you got to probably pivot and make a different kind of movie because you're trying, they're, they're basically giving us the bones of the story from the first two films, except all the pieces are missing. It's like trying to put together a skeleton, yet you're missing the rib cage, you're missing one of yeah. the arms. Like oh, that's true. They're trying to tell us they're trying to tell us a full on insidious Lambert family story. The problem is for eighty five percent of this movie, it's only two of the characters from the first one. So nine out of the and nine they're not together. Yeah, out of the out of the nine main characters, the five family members, the mother, and then Elise Tucker and Specs, we get two. For the whole, and they're apart. So we got one at college apart. and one at home. So it's a weird dynamic they introduced this movie. And so, like I said, I, I 100%, I, that's why I said I joked, but I'm serious. Like Barbara Hershey probably is like, no, nah, I don't feel like doing another film. Or maybe she's just like, I don't have time to do it. And so they're like, all right, well, we're killing her off. Uh, and then we're moving on. It's just like, it's just a lot of weird choices. And it felt like, it felt like, it felt like one of those movies where, the studio or whatever, they're like, okay, we need to open Insidious Five on this date. What can we, what can we do to make right. this open? And they're like, well, we could pivot and do it just a Josh, and we got Ty Simpkins coming back, and we got Patrick Wilson, about said Patrick Stewart, Patrick Wilson coming back, and he's going to direct, and we got you know Lee Wynell came up with the story, and we got this guy who did Halloween Kills, and he didn't introduce Corey, so he's okay. Um, so we're going <laughs> to you know, we'll use him, we'll use him, and so we're going to do that. Um, but we can't get this. We can't get that. We can't get this, but we can do this. They're like, all right, cool. Here's your budget. Get it open by July 7th. And that's kind of what it felt like. And again, none of that's Patrick Wilson's fault. None of that's right. really even Scott teams fault. That's the case. You know what I mean? You got to work with what you're given and I get it. You're getting paid to do this as a job. You do your job. And again, there's elements of this film that still work, but yeah, that maybe that was it. Like, they're just like, they're not available. So we got to pivot. Like maybe they did have a full story with all nine characters. I don't know, but it felt like they specifically went away from that and I don't understand it. And again, based purely on the story, based purely on the film, it just didn't work for me. Right. And, and that's why uh, and I'll reference again, one of my favorite podcasts out there that isn't rewinding living dead uh, writers, blockbusters. They treat the film as the final draft of the script. Yeah, they do. And, and ultimately that's the movie going experience that you and I have. So I'm not, we're, and I, I promise you guys, we're never here to shit on movies that we don't, we're not this, we're not this group that chomps at the bit to tear something down. I actually did a post today where I was like, like where I said something to the effect of like, you might hate a movie before you ever see it. I wait and see, we are not the same. Yeah. Like the point is, is like, I always give everything a fair shake, but the final product of this movie didn't make for a great movie going experience, regardless of how it all came together, whatever choices had to be made. Maybe they did have to be made that way, but it turns into that kind of movie. But by the way, you said it earlier, you go, Hey, we're giving you this budget and we got a job to do, get it open by July 7th. Patrick Wilson and production company did that to a profit. And they will probably see, they will be in the black profit wise very quickly. Oh yeah. It's a cheap movie to make. It's about 16 million bucks. It already made 50 something million at the box office. It probably needs to make probably about another 30 more, which I think it's very on track to do. And it could, it could walk away from the box office at a hundred million dollars. Yeah. They did it. They did their job. Oh yeah. And that, and, and I think for a lot of casual listeners, this is an important lesson. 
is that you are often, you come into a film with all the best intentions and maybe Patrick Wilson and Scott teams had a grand design, but then you get hit with reality and you have to make do or you jump ship. Well, guess what? If you jump ship, you don't get the next job. They're not interested in you if you jump ship. So they go, oh, Barbara Hershey fell out. Rose Byrne can only do a, a week of shooting. Uh, okay, make it work. We still need to release in July 7th. That's not Patrick Wilson's fault. If you want to get the job, if you want a great example of this, we got to get to categories. If you want a great example of this, go listen to any Rob Zombie interview where he talks about the making of the first Halloween, his Halloween remake. Yeah. And he, I know he talked about it, which I'm not necessarily promoting the podcast because it's kind of wacky at times, but he does. I know he talked about it on Joe Rogan's podcast, and I think he's talked about it other places where he talked about kind of like the hellish experience that was making the first Halloween film. Cause it was a major studio movie with Miramax and he was getting notes constantly from Harvey and Bob Weinstein, the guys who own Miramax. Of course, we all know two, two yeah, seller guys. I'm yeah, sure two, two, <laughs> Yeah. We all know Harvey Weinstein, the, the scumbag sleaze that he is, uh, who, you know, thankfully will rot the rest of his life in prison. Um, but he was getting daily notes from them and he talks at candidly about how stressful it was and like just the shit experience it made it making that movie because he was just constantly getting bombarded with notes and studio notes and do this and don't do this and don't do that. And he talked and like, that's a big part of, I believe why he said that he started just doing independent film again, because he couldn't take it. Like it was just too much. Um, yeah that's what we're talking about. Like if you don't like, and again, I'm not excusing, listen, I have a lot of issues with this film. Clearly I've gone on for an hour talking about it, but like we said, like there's a lot of this that may not be at the fault of Patrick Wilson, Scott teams, James Wan, Lee one L. We don't know. I'm not making excuses. I'm just saying like, that's a reality. And that could be part of the reason Now maybe it's not, maybe we're all talking about this. And we talked to Patrick Wilson, you're like, no, this is exactly the film I wanted to make. Okay. Well, great. Um, <laughs> okay, great. I'll but, hang up the phone now. But that's what I'm saying. Like when you deal with a big film like this, especially a franchise, number five in a franchise, there are certain expectations that come along with that. And, you know, go listen to Rob Zombie talk about it. And you can see the difference between the film that he originally had in mind and what they wanted. And he still made a film he wanted to make, but it was not easy to get there. Um, yeah. You know, so anyways, let's get to categories. We drilled on a lot over the time here. So let's uh, <laughs> let's get to categories. And, and there's lesser categories this week, so it kind of helps out. Um, let's talk about best performance uh, in Insidious the Red Door, Patrick. Who is your best performance? <laughs> My best performance goes to an actor we never mentioned. <laughs> not once we have not mentioned her at all in the podcast and that is dalton's roommate in college chris played by sinclair daniels okay so she's the comedic relief of this movie she's the specs and tucker of this movie um she's just sort of an aloof uh, very self-aware kind of goofier character who pops into Dalton's life. She's mistakenly bunks with him at the dorms. And from that point on, she is sort of the person that plays off of Dalton in this movie. I loved her performance. We literally did not talk about it. She, but here's the thing. She was very meta in this movie. Like she was one second away from turning to the camera and talking to the audience. There were a couple moments. She was almost Deadpool. There was, yeah, there was a couple moments where I thought she was going to look and look at the, th look directly at the camera and go, shit's about to get real. Um, Shit's that, about to get insidious. Yeah, Wink. yeah there was a couple moments that no, she was great. Yeah, you, you spent this entire time talking to me. I feel kind of bad because she actually was really good. She uh, was the best performance of the yeah, whole movie. She was actually really good. Yeah, I was, I was like, well, damn. She, uh, yeah. So it, 
<laughs> my best my best performance is a character we haven't talked about for an hour and a half. <laughs> that's funny. That may, that may be a podcast first. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, she did good, do a good job. Sinclair Daniel did do a great job of, of the characters they introduced randomly in this movie. She did do a good job. You know, it's funny. I I swear. This was not planned. I swear this was not planned. My favorite performance is another character we've yet to mention. <laughs> my favorite performance, my honestly, my favorite performance was Peter Dager as Nick the Dick, the weird, the weird fraternity guy. And here's why. You and I went to college. Now, you went to San Diego State. I went to Cincinnati, University of Cincinnati. I very briefly, very briefly, Almost joined a fraternity in college. Oh, my God. I came from a very small town, and when I went there, they're like, this is a great way to make friends. And I was like, all right, I'm open to this experience. Lasted about four weeks. Got the fuck out. Now, by the way, I'm not begrudging anyone who's in a fraternity. By yeah, any hey, do it if you want. If you okay. know me, you'd probably be like, that dude probably <clears throat> is not the fraternity type. But I tried it, and it just wasn't for me. So I knew guys like now to be fair, the fraternity I was in, I actually really liked a lot of the people that were there. A lot of cool people, but there is a stereotypical fraternity guy. That's Nick the dick. And they play it up so well in this movie. And he's such an aloof asshole that I just liked the performance because again, I'm going a different direction. The reason I went a different direction, because again, there's only really two main characters. It's Patrick Wilson and Ty Simpkins. They were fine. I love, I really actually really enjoy Patrick Wilson as an actor. I'm a, ever yeah. since he was in Watchmen, I'm a huge fan of his. I really like him in uh, Zack Snyder's Watchmen. He's incredible. Um, yeah, I really, I really like Patrick Wilson, but you know, I kind of expected what I got out of him as weird as that sounds like, you know what I mean? I got what I expected out of him. He's a good actor. Um, but Rose Burns barely in it, you know, as I said, like, you know, uh, Lynn Shay's barely in it. Lee Whannell's barely in it. Like the characters who I thought maybe would strengthen the performances weren't really there. And so, you know, Barbara Hershey wasn't in it. So I kind of had to look outside of that. So yes, both of us picked best performances <laughs> from characters we've never mentioned until this very second. <laughs> if you got this far in the podcast, you're like, who? Yeah. You talk about those guys. Yeah, but mine was Nick the Dick as all as all favorite characters. But yeah, Peter Peter Dager was was pretty good as the as the stereotypical uh, fraternity douchebag guy, and, I thought, and a yeah. modern fraternity douchebag. Like yeah. he does not not from the old classic eighties movies where they were all like you know like either like a golf buddy or or a jock. Like he's yeah. just he's sort of like a very millennial Gen Z. Uh, fraternity guy it's yeah. a very different look and i think he played it well no he did well i just i just i thought it was a different performance i was glad to see like he was just like a typical college guy and i just thought it was really well done yeah. in that, you know and it, for all the characters they did um best ghoul now this is an interesting c category patrick you did best ghoul kind of like we did for insidious um there's not a lot of choices here though um there's, there's, there's only a couple ghouls so what was your best ghoul because you might get one of the two that were in this movie <laughs> Now, yeah, well, I mean, while we're on the topic of college, there was a barf ghoul. <laughs> there was a ghoul who died from from drinking too much, and you know he he asphyxiated or something. Uh, and and that's the first ghoul I think that Dalton encounters like like explicitly because there's like there's like moments of like a hand and there, there's other things, but like the first time he like sees a bona fide full full uh, a class five free roaming vapor, as they would say in uh, Ghostbusters. Uh, was the was the barf ghoul, and so um, I you know why I picked him? He was disgusting. Yeah. He was covered in barf, and then he barfs the fuck all over Dalton, which yeah. is great. 
So I was like, he's very active in this, in his role as a ghoul. And he, he didn't play like all the other ghouls tend to play in the original insidious, which were like some weird, like they're just kind of locked in their stasis. Um, yeah. He, he, he was like active and kind of like a- attacked Dalton, if you will. Yeah. 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 That was good. Yeah. He was uh, pretty gross and, and yeah, he had vomit all down his sweater and his face and everything. It was pretty good. Um, I would agree there. Um, so there's only one other demon in this movie, I guess. So I guess I'll go with that one. Um, I'm joking, but there really weren't. I mean, we're being honest there. There weren't a lot of ghouls in this movie. Like even the lipstick, the lipstick face demon, as they call yeah, him. Yeah, he was red, like not in it very he was, much. He was in it for like two minutes, maybe. Not even that. Yeah, really. I thought he, he would be way more part of the movie. Yeah, I thought that was going to be the whole plot of the movie. It was like him being yeah. the main villain and he was barely in it. Um, he kind of appeared at the end and then you're like, oh, he's there. And then he's just gone. It was just weird. So yeah. even though I hated the plot line, the 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 actual the actual execution of introducing it was well done. So I'm I am going to go with with Daddy Daddy Ghoul, you know Dad Dad right, Lambert, yeah. because the the way they use that ghoul with like the weird blurry and he keeps getting closer. And as I mentioned earlier, the whole match game trick with the the pictures yeah. on the on the on the uh, on the uh, window and he keeps lifting it and you see the thing keep being closer and closer that was my honestly that was my favorite part of the whole movie it was a really cool effective use and that i'm going to steal it i'm going to steal the effect that I, is patrick wilson that is like patrick it. wilson i want to credit him for that like that alone that right there that one scene is enough for me to be like, give this guy another movie because that was a really cool creative thing. Now I know some of that could have been in the script, but that's a lot of visual you have to set up there. And it was really well executed between that and the cinematographer with him lifting up the pictures and just keeps doing it. And you just keep noticing this thing getting closer and closer and closer. So effective, so well done. Um, Honestly, it was the most effective. It was the most tension filled dread scene in this entire movie and it lasted for about two and a half maybe three minutes so well done i love i would go i would i love that scene that was so good like that was the moment where i was like all right you kind of lost me at the beginning of this movie but this part was freaking awesome so yes the daddy ghoul i guess is my favorite um even though the payoff was not good but i like that that scene was so good man like i would i'm not kidding when i say this i'll watch this movie again just to get to that moment that moment was so well like i was like i applaud when i see a really cool horror effect that was a cool one it really is a good cool horror effect and it has a great build-up too because you first see him just briefly but in a great tension filled dread filled scene at the cemetery yeah and then it just it doesn't manifest itself and you're like okay well what was that and then it manifests itself again during the match uh, the memory game thing and it, it's great it, it that is the best scene and i want to give one honorable mention there was another ghoul that i guess wasn't part of the story but it was there was the mri ghoul oh yeah and why i want to give that mention is in my theater that got the biggest reaction of anything and it and, and my theater reacted plenty. There were, there were plenty of moments where the theater reacted, but when when the when the machine is kind of humming and clacking and doing all of its MRI things, and you start seeing that the ghost is coming, my crowd was all 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 of them were ready to just simultaneously fart, <laughs> like they were all ready to go. Like you could just feel the room ready to just ah oh, shit. Like, so I wanted to give a little mention to that. It didn't get me. It wasn't, well, it wasn't something that I thought was great, but it, it got the audience. Big. Here's the problem, Patrick. It was in the trailer. 
Was it? Oh, yeah. see, I never watched the trailer. It's in the trailer. the trailer. And so it, that's why I was like, no, that was, I agree. It was a great one. It was a great prank. It, again, I like you. See I didn't how that it. works, though? That bummed me out, they though. Show it, they show it in the trailer, and the reaction in the audience was mega. Yeah, I don't know. Right. Why was the reaction in your audience? No, it was good. It was really, that, that very much got like with the dagger. with like, oh, no, 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 yeah. no, no. And so it's like, like, yeah, you and I as seasoned like moviegoers like hate that. And clearly it's working, but it, no, it doesn't no. matter that we don't like it. It works I, really well for people. I did like it and it did work. It just made me mad that it was in the trailer. So I even, right. even no, though I'm saying seeing yeah, it in the trailer, yeah, even, though, even, even though I knew it was coming, it just bummed me out that I knew it was coming. Like I was like, come on. Like that was a really good one. Like I agree. It was a really good, really good gag. I enjoyed that, but I'm like, don't put that in the trailer. Well, so, now you know why I avoid, uh, I avoid a lot of trailers. Yeah, for reasons was, exactly yeah. Like also, that. one I want to mention, I talked about all the characters who didn't show up in this one. I know you didn't see the second one. There's a character in the second one called Carl. He is Elise's former partner who they right. break they break apart, and he ends up being kind of like the central character in Insidious 2. He is briefly in Insidious The Red Door. He bumps into Josh at the funeral, and right. he's the one who wiped their memories. And he bumps into him. He's like, oh, do I know you? And he's like, oh, my name's Carl. And he's like, why do I feel like I know you somewhere? He's like, oh, I was a friend from your mother from years ago. And then he just goes away. He goes, like, well, gotta go. Yeah, like, there's <laughs> another one. Like, that was another one. Like, the Tucker, like, just like the Specs and Tucker thing. Like, Carl was there for, like, a 30 seconds at the start of the film. And then he just goes away. I'm like, I don't understand this movie. <laughs> Yeah, and I understood who he was. Like I, I, like as somebody who didn't watch Insidious two, they set it up well enough where I was like, okay, here's Carl again. Yeah, how's that going to pay off? And it doesn't. Yeah. And I was like, what the fuck? Yeah, it Guys. was so weird. <laughs> it was just really weird. Um, let's talk about best scare because again, this is a horror film and I, again, credit where credit's due. The jump scares in this movie are still pretty effective. And as I said, at the very start of the episode, when I sounded so positive before I really turned on this film, uh, when I sounded so positive, I said, one of the things that I realized about the insidious franchise is why this film, why these films work so well in theaters as I experienced for the first time watching this film. And I was like, now I really get it. The music yeah. and the scares work. So spoiler, Patrick. We have the same scare. And the oh. only reason I'm saying that ahead of time is because while there were other effective scares, there actually were quite a few pretty decent jump scares in this movie. Well, we dialed it back. I would say there were some decent ones. There was a, there was a, a decent number. Compared to the original Insidious, which is like brr, yeah. like barrage of scares. If there's like 50 in the original, there's like 15 in this one. So, right. Yeah. Let me be clear about that. But the 15 are pretty good. The reason I'm picking and I'm not switching to another one, which I sometimes will pick something different so we have a couple moments to talk about. The reason I picked the same one here is because this is the one that actually got me to jump in my chair. I actually jolted. I was like, oh, shit. So talk about, because, I, again, I usually, I don't like to pick the same one all the time, but this one I did because this one legitimately got me. It's got me too, man. And I think it was, and so what, what I called it in my notes was the art room hand. And we talk about the way Dalton gets slipped back into the further is through this process that his professor does to kind of get them on, almost into a trance to kind of tap into their deeper emotional selves to, to put art to page. Um, and so he's in that process and you see that he's starting to draw and form something. He's working with this, with this charcoal and he's working very intensely. And it's, and I feel like, What's so well structured about this scare is that it lulled us into almost the same 
the same point of view as Dalton. We were sort of lulled into the process. And I was just watching him go through the process, almost like a, in an episode of Better Call Saul, where they spend like five minutes watching a character just do something. It was kind of like that. So I, I felt, and I bet you felt probably similar, you just felt you you got into a rhythm. Yeah. And then the rhythm gets broken by this hand coming out of the fucking chalk. And I think it was the lipstick face demon. Yeah. It was his hand going rah, and just like the mute, the, the, the sound effects super loud. And, and it, and I was like, Hey, what the fuck? Like, I was like mad. I was like, you know, don't, don't fucking, fucking scare me. Yeah. Also, scare me. the other thing I want to mention that scene, you talked about the, the, you kind of fall in the scene. The other thing they did really effectively in that scene was close-ups. A lot yes, of really it's good incredibly tight. where you see just his hand and the chalk or the, uh, the, the charcoal and he's like scribbling on the page. So you're just seeing these dark, waves of of color well no color actually black just on this page so you don't really know you also don't really know what he's doing you're not quite sure what he's what yeah, he's you're drawing. not oriented yeah and so it's real close up so when the hand popped out i jumped and i was like oh shit like it got me it what i'm not gonna lie it 100 got me and that's why i wanted to say like even though i do like to pick different things this one's the same because when i read your notes i was like well we're having the same one because that one got me to jump in my seat i literally was like oh yeah and that, please tell me that's not in the trailer. No, it's not. That one's not okay, in the trailer good. at all. Yeah. Good. That's worth that's worth saving. Yeah. That's a good scare. That was a good one. I, but I was like, so because jump scares, I love when a jump scare gets me. And I was like, damn right, mm-hmm. that was good. I was like, way to go. That one Nothing really got else me. got me in this movie. No other scares got me in no. this movie. That one got me. Well, that was you know, we talked about in the first insidious how the 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 famous scene of Lorraine the mother talking to Josh and the, and the lipstick face demon popping up is like one of the most, it's considered one of the top right. scares in horror movie history. And you and I were kind of like, you know, we didn't, eh. and, we, and you told that was one you told us in the trailer. It was in, it's the, in tra- the fucking trailer. Yeah. Why are you scaring me with yeah. the thing that's in the trailer? And it and didn't get me the can. way it got, it didn't get me the way it got everyone else. This one did. I was like, damn you. Yeah. And you know what? Listen, I have a lot of problems with this film. Clearly. But if I boil it down to two key moments that I really loved, which is the match game thing and then the scare, we go to we go to horror films to be scared. We like now, don't get me wrong, you know me. I'm a story guy. I need a story. The story fell short on this one, right? Like I'm 100% saying the story fell short on this one. But those two moments in particular will always live with me. And I appreciate that about this movie because I'm hard to get with jump scares mm-hmm. and they did get me with one and that match game one was one where I'm like, oh, yeah, and you just said, I'm stealing it. Yes, 100%. That is a cool scene I want to see again. That scene alone, as I said earlier, give Patrick Wilson another movie just based on that, the, the genius yeah. of that shot. Um, so, yeah, like I said, a lot, lot didn't work for me in this film. Those two things alone make me actually enjoy it in a weird way. There, there are quality things about this movie. Yeah. They, they, there really are, yeah. But there, you know, there's yeah. a lot of experiences we didn't enjoy. So usually right now we get into a category that I've really fallen in love with, which is where we talk about uh, remake, sequel, or leave it alone. And that's usually where we pick a film and we say, should they remake it? Should they sequelize it or just leave it as it is? Now, this is the fifth film in a franchise, so we really can't do that here. So what we did instead, and this is the genius of my great co-host Patrick here, uh, should this be the end of the Insidious franchise? We are now in the fifth film. The first two were the Lambert family. The second two were prequels. And then this fifth film revisits the Lambert family. So again, it's kind of like one, two, five, or if you want to go in order, it's three, four, one, two, five. It's kind of the order. Cause three is technically the oldest of those other movies. We're at five films. Should this be the end of the insidious franchise? 
I, I came up with this category for one of two reasons. Was one is I just was curious to see what you thought about this because I have thoughts. But then also I came up with this category because Jason Blum said that essentially this is. He goes, I'm not saying never, but I'm saying we're definitely putting it on the shelf for an indefinite amount of time. So in their eyes, it's the end of this franchise. So based on what we saw there at, at with the Red Door, should this be the end? And I think that it's a definitive end, in my opinion, for for a movie that you could continue. I mean, it's very I think it's very easy to continue to franchise this movie out. No problem. Go into different worlds, talk to different people. Hey, bring back Carl or whatever, you know, bring bring. There's plenty of people you can bring back to keep this universe going. But should you? And I think that even in this situation, which we talk about, it's either very intentional or very much because of the circumstances that this movie came out the way it came out. I think you call it quits. I think you go, let's do it. And they're, they're clearly going to come out on top, which is a good thing. And you want that. Let it lie until you can come way down the line somewhere. Dalton is now a family man and you can play that game. Go for it. Why not? Who cares? But for now, it does seem like they're out of things to talk about. So I'm going to agree that it should be the end, but I'm going to throw out one caveat that made me probably, and we haven't even talked about this, and this probably made me the, the most upset about this movie. And again, I'm not talking, I'm, I'm doing a rewrite of Living Dead here, but I want to mention this. So the end of the film, Josh and Dalton are in the further, and Josh once again is there to rescue his son, to help his son out. We said they literally mimicked the first movie where they had Josh, or, uh, yeah. Dalton chained to the, to the floor in Meatloaf's basement with the lipstick face <laughs> demon. Um, and he carries him out. And then at one point, Josh is blocking the red door to keep the demon from coming after his son. He tells his son to go off, but eventually the dad escapes. I was sitting there thinking, why you called it insidious, the red door, which by the way, the red door really doesn't play that prominent of a role in this film. Like it's really weird that they call it the red door. Um, I thought I got the point of the movie being called the red door when Josh was holding it closed. And I thought, Oh, this is going to be the moment he's going to stay behind to keep the red door closed to protect his family. And so Josh is the reason, and he's going to stay there and stay comatose in the real world. So Dylan, or I keep calling him Dylan. So Dalton can escape and that's the end of the, and that's how they kind of find their way back to each other is the like, he's like, dad, I love you. And he's like, I love you too. Get out of here. And, and Josh sacrifices himself to save Dalton. That's what I thought was happening. He's literally got his back against the door and the demons trying to claw through. And he tells Dalton, go, go, go. Right. And I was like, Oh, that's cool. And you know what? And honestly, in that moment, I was like, you know what? You kind of got me. That's a cool ending. Like right, he yeah, stopped, a great ending. He stopped to save the, he saved his son. He's stuck in the, in the, and so when that, when I, I had it in my head, that's what was happening. And I was like, here's how you go back for a sixth film. As you wait a few years, Dalton's an adult. His dad's still living in like an assisted care facility, like in a coma forever. And he finally says, you know what? I've mastered these abilities. He's now become the dream master or the further master, whatever the fuck we want to call it. <laughs> he goes back in to save his dad and try to bring him back out. Like he's, he's like, you know what? I can't live with myself knowing my dad's in this hellish landscape. I need yeah. to go rescue him. And that's the sixth film. They yeah. messed it up <laughs> by having him just escape. And in the end, they're all kind of like back together as a family again. And I'm just like, 
I actually really liked that ending in my head where I was right there with you, dude. I was like, cool. Josh is going to hold the door. Hodor, right? (laughs) One one of my favorite, one of my favorite moments at all of in all of Game of Thrones, right? The Hodor moment. Why you find out why he's Hodor. He's going to hold the door to keep his son safe. Oh man, it would have, they would have stuck the landing with that. Instead, what happens is the dad, who we introduce as a very convenient thing, <laughs> yeah. like like leads leads Josh back into the real world, and dad's gonna hold the door. Okay, <laughs> but dad wasn't had anything to do with Insidious before this movie, so it doesn't have the impact. Yeah, it just it makes it wraps it up in this neat little bow. And you're right, they missed a great opportunity to very easily go to number six, yeah. to very easily do that, and they didn't. Instead. Uh, it's all happily ever after everybody's back together, which feels very unearned. And, and then this is the part that bugged me the most. Dalton goes from being like a sullen goth guy to wearing like a bright polo shirt. And I was like, nah, fuck you guys. Yeah. No wait, well, he could stay goth and be happy. He could, he doesn't have to now wear a bright colored shirt. It reminds I me hate, of, uh, it, it reminds me of the end of the faculty, which I love. I love the faculty. The, but or the, the end of like the breakfast club when, yeah, they, like, when they messed with, uh, what's her name? Oh yeah. Ali yeah, Sheedy Ali became, Sheedy, yeah. went from goth to being like mod. And I was like, nah, fuck you guys. Yeah, Clea Duvall's character in, uh, in the faculty is like the super goth, like outcast. And she's like, you know, black makeup, black clothes, like, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then she gets together with, uh, Sean Hattesey's character at the end. She's wearing like a, violet jumper and like i was like what is going on here she's like super like i was like no like you could be like you know you could get together and have her get the she ends up with the quarterback or whatever that's fine but why do you need to suddenly dress her like she just like you know got a she just got like a gift card to the gap like why do we just suddenly decide to dress dress her that way like goths can be happily ever after too yes. you don't need to dr- redress them yeah. that's, that's patrick wilson's like okay boomer moment yeah like, <laughs> like i love dude I, no he doesn't need to change the way he looks generally speaking you and i are both pretty happy people and guess what i wear nothing but black so you know <laughs> <laughs> i open my drawers and it's fucking black yeah so like yeah i was with you on that one i was like why is this up yeah it just it was a missed opportunity and i'm not again i had a lot of issues clearly with this movie it's not you know it's not halloween ends by any stretch of my imagination no 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 but i like again a lot and again i'm i know i'm making excuses who is available what did the studio say i understand all that's in there but just ultimately just looking at the film a lot i had a problem with that ending sticking the landing would have saved it in so many ways we'd be talking about this movie very differently if and it ended the that fact way. that they introduced the weird dad character to save the day when he had no ties to anything else in this movie except for this film I just, I was like, this is so weird. The choices that they made in this movie were just utterly bizarre, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, and listen, even if, even if this is the last one and you're not going to come back for part six, just having Josh sacrifice himself to save Dalton would have been a cool ending. Like he's like, my journey is over. The, 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 you know, what my dad tried to do to stop this was kill himself. I'm staying here. I'm staying alive in this coma. I'm keeping this freaking door closed forever so you can live a happy life and these things can't come after you anymore. Okay. No sixth film. Close the loop. Story over. Yeah. But, but they just, it was just so weird to me that they went in another direction. 
Yeah, what are you going to do? I don't know, man. They made some bizarre choices. Yeah, like happy ending. But why? Like, I just, I don't know, man. It just, <laughs> oh, the whole film is, the whole film is Josh kind of trying to make it up to Dalton. He's been a bad dad yeah. all these years. Yeah. And the ending is his dad randomly. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I had to mention that because I was, I was saving it for this category because I was just like, if they would have just gone the other direction, then you would have a six film. You could potentially revisit it and say, Dylan, I keep calling him Dylan. Dalton is going back into the further uh, to save his dad, like three years down the road or four years down the road or five years down the road. Totally. You, you had an option to either close it for good or, or go for a sequel later down the line. It was clean. Yeah. And they just went one step. Yeah. One step wrong. That's that happened. But what, what, what do I know? Yeah. Um, second to last category here, Patrick. Can we survive this horror film? We talked about this with Insidious, and I think we both said we would survive Insidious, uh, much like myself with uh, with Poltergeist other haunted house films. And I know this isn't a haunted house film, but I said I would just get out. Like there's, I you know, I don't need a family that badly. My kids are going to miss me, <laughs> but I'm out. Um, Insidious, the Red Door. You're the sullen. College student, Patrick, are you surviving this horror film? Easy. It's the same answer as last week, because I, I that's when I, I that's when I got good at controlling dreams was in college. I started to become a dream master. I was a dream student in my college years. So, yeah, it, it was, this is this is easy, especially the way they they shaped this movie. Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, it's like these ghouls are like easy to work with. They're They're nowhere near as nasty as the ones from the original. I would 100% survive this movie because a, there were like two ghouls um, and they weren't nearly as scary. And the further wasn't really that scary this time. Like the drifting. And one in, of the ghouls was my dad. <laughs> yeah. So we are, we already get along. So and, we're good. And the one ghoul who throws up on you while gross, isn't exactly the murderous ghoul. Like he's not the guy yeah. coming for your soul. He's just going to puke on you. Now, while that is kind of disgusting, um, he ain't coming at you with like, you know, acid vomit, like where he's going to melt your insides or anything like that. Like, he's yeah, or just, that faceless guy who was like literally just trying to kill you. Like he yeah. get to you and try to choke you and like rip you apart. Yeah. This guy wasn't doing that. Yeah. It's just like he was just there were pretty tame ghouls. And even the lipstick face demon was just kind of like barely there. I'm like, these are not really <laughs> they're not really scary to me. Like, you're not really coming after me as much force, guys. Like, what happened? Like, did you guys lose your mojo in these nine years I was away? Like, what's going on? Yeah, so, the energy was low on the ghoul side, so yeah. easy survive. Yeah, one hundred percent. I'm I'm making it through this, but I'm skating through. Also, can I mention what? I'm sorry, I keep going back to things that bother me in this movie. Um, <laughs> can I mention we we talked about the introduction of uh, Chris, the Chris. roommate, yeah. the roommate. They had this weird injection of a scene where they're in Nick the Dick's room and they're about to get discovered, and so Chris jumps up and kisses Dalton. Classic. Right classic movie trick to put the characters together in like a romantic situation. They right. introduce this and they continue to have them flirt, but then it never goes anywhere. <laughs> like they have <laughs> them kiss and you're kind of like, Ooh, are they like, kind of like, you know, like the whole sparks flying kind of moment between these two. And yes, it's generic. And my God, can we please have a guy and a girl or any relationship in movies that don't necessarily need them to end up where they're together as a couple. I would appreciate that. But introducing that one little thread of her kissing him and him kind of being like into it, you could kind of tell. And then they just abandon it. The rest of the movie, like they don't ever, there's no romantic connection. The rest of the movie is the weirdest. It was the weirdest choice to where you definitely, am I wrong in saying that they, they tried to do that and then it just disappeared. No, I think, I think it was more of a nod to doing that. 
and showing like I think it was more to show that like Dalton has clearly been locked away in his little world and like he'd probably never even kissed a girl. I think what it was was that was like the first moment he'd probably ever kissed a girl. I think it felt like strong imp- implication to that. But also like I appreciate the movie for not doing that generic down the road thing. They were like you know that these two make no sense together. So yeah. why even explore it? So like, I, I, I wouldn't, I don't disagree with how it was done. I disagree though, because then just take the stupid kiss scene out of it. It was so like a non, I understand why I guess kind of like why they did it, but it was just like, it was so generic. It's like, Oh, we're going to get discovered. We must be in here about to make out and screw. Like, it's just so, it felt so generic. Like, there's just a million other ways to have a fun way to get out of that that don't involve them kind of hinting at a romance. You know what I mean? Like, just the hint of that kind of bothered me because they were, they were like an odd couple friends. And it was kind of cool. But then they introduced that and it's kind of like there was a weird little underlying kind of tension there for a minute and then it just got abandoned. It was just, I don't know. It just felt unnecessary. Like there could have just been another choice made where we don't always have to have them like, oh, we're going to get discovered. Well, we better kiss. So no one knows what we were doing in here. Like, I just, I don't know. It's like, it just felt like lazy storytelling to me. We, I mean, we, I'm not as bothered with that, but I'm actually more bothered with why it was part of the story because they were doing this whole snooping and figuring out that we didn't really get into in this podcast. (laughs) That, That whole side, the Dalton's like college hijinks. We didn't even really get into that it wasn't my favorite part of the story oh, anyway. yeah, i mean we didn't even get into dalton sneaking into chris's room when he's astral projecting like creepily like going near her bed and stuff like what the- yeah yeah it's uh, yeah. we don't we're <laughs> we don't have another podcast to talk yeah. about that. that's another that's what i'm talking about like the other romance thing like he sneaks into his into her bedroom and he's like watching her sleep and i'm like what is going on here this is just yeah this is getting, little, it's odd a little creepy um, all right, last category is always, uh, is it scary? Boy, we've gone on a lot of tangents here. Um, <laughs> is it scary? <laughs> At the end of the day, Insidious, Insidious the Red Door, Insidious 5 if you're nasty, uh, is it scary? It is, actually. And, uh, you know, first of all, it got you and me, so we can't p- pretend like we never got scared because we totally did and because we agree on our favorite scare. And secondly, I was I had all the evidence I needed. I was in a packed house on a Thursday night. And people were scared shitless multiple times. So do I personally go, yeah, this is a, such a scary movie. It's far less scary than Insidious. And I, I even had complaints with Insidious. I even thought Insidious wasn't as scary as I, as I would have wanted a movie to be. So on the surface, no. But evidence doesn't matter. If, if I'm sitting in, a co- in an audience at a comedy show and everyone around me is laughing at the comic except me, well, guess what? It's still funny. Yeah. I just didn't laugh. Yeah. So in this respect, it's the exact, exact same thing. This isn't a scary movie to me. It's clearly scaring the piss out of audiences. It is scary. I would agree. And I'd say that just based on that one moment, it got me a jump scare legitimately yeah. got me where I jumped in my chair and I was like, you know what? Damn right. Good job. Here's the other thing I would say about this. It is scary. The audience did react really well. There were a lot of like, Ooh, moments mm-hmm. in my theater and a lot of oh, you know, jump moments in my theater. My only issue is, as I've said a thousand times, and people listen to this are like, oh, dude, shut up already. Uh, it's just not enough of it. They could have, man, this film had potential. Yeah. It had potential. There were legitimately a couple of good jump scares in here. I just wanted more. 
like if it's a, like I said, I know I'm going all the way back to the original point. You know, they started at a zero and they never got back to a ten. If they could have just ratcheted it up a little bit and, and ha- added scares, like it wasn't even it wasn't even nearly as scary as Insidious, the first Insidious. Like, yeah, I close. wanted more. They did a pretty good job, like that match game prank and the and the and the, the art room prank. Like, dude, give me ten more of those, and I probably right. would have really legitimately, like, even though the story was weak and and I didn't like a lot of the choices they made. If you give me ten more good scares, and I legitimately, I'll, I'll pretty much praise this movie for that because ultimately that's what we're here for. We're here to be scared. We're here for a horror movie and there just wasn't enough horror but is it scary yes because the scares they had that were were really effective i just wanted more of it that's it just wanted more that's all call us greedy we just wanted more scares yeah give us a little bit more come on and don't put Corey in here. That's all I wanted. No, no hey, Corey, Corey wasn't in this. He they didn't do that. They gave give, you that. Give him credit. No Corey. All right, folks, that is our show for this week. Uh, we appreciate everyone tuning in. This one went a little long, but we had a lot to say about Insidious 5, clearly. Uh, so we appreciate <laughs> everyone listening. Uh, always find us on all your favorite podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon, Google, uh, and you can always find us over on my website, nerdcoremovement.com. And please don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're still growing that with subscribers. So please, please, please uh, find us over on YouTube. Just search Rewind of the Living Dead and subscribe to our channel. Also, if you got questions, comments, movies you'd like us to review, hit us up on any of our social media channels. We've been getting a lot of great messages on Instagram in particular. So we appreciate everyone who has uh, been sending us messages over on uh, on Instagram. Uh, you can find us at just search again, Rewind of the Living Dead on Twitter. Uh, we are still on Twitter for now, uh, Facebook, and uh, and uh, and uh, Instagram. We may eventually open a Threads, but we're not there yet. Uh, I have a Threads account, but and I think you have a Threads account, but we, do. don't, we don't have a Rewinded Living Dead Threads account yet because they haven't quite figured that part out about the whole Instagram thing. But anyways, uh, if you need to send us a question, comment, review, uh, or questions, send us there on social media or send us to our email, rotlivingdead at gmail.com. That's rot livingdead at gmail.com and you can also find us on our own personal uh social media channels on instagram twitter and threads i am am at damon martin and you are at director patrick want to say a big thank you as always to everyone that tunes into the show we'll be back next week with another edition of rewind of the living dead thanks for tuning in we'll see you then peace